You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Morning, Redemption. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the life of Redemption right now. If you want to know what that is, you can pull out your phones, head to redemptionhou.com slash today. There are two things that I want to make you aware of. Um, the first is that this afternoon at three o'clock, we've got a new members class, right? There's no commitment there. If you're curious, what does membership at Redemption look like? What does it mean? Um, what does it look like to like officially join and make redemption my spiritual family. That's what the class is for. Um, there'll be other opportunities if you can't make it. We'll have some more in the future, but uh, wanted to let y'all know that that is happening. The second thing that's not on that page that I want to make sure that you know about, um, this Tuesday at 8 a.m., uh, we're going to love Longfellow and support the teachers over there. They're doing their in-service. This will be their last week of in-service before they go uh, live <laughs> on Monday. Um, right, it's, being a teacher has always been hard. Um, it's especially hard in 2022, and I don't expect it to get any easier. And so we're trying to do our best to continue loving them and supporting them and caring for them um, in the best way that we can and know how. And so um, if you're interested in helping out with that, not just this next week, but like long term, how can we help support them and take care of them and all of those things? Uh, will you let Lauren know? Um, she's looking for help. If you've got any ideas, any insights, um, she would love it. So grab Lauren. You can let her know how, um, if you're interested in getting involved. So there you go. Last thing, if you're new here, if you go to that website, redemptionhou.com slash today, um, there's, you scroll down just a touch, there's a little button that says, I'm new. If you fill that out, we will shoot you a text message or an email and just invite you to coffee or to a Zoom call just to have a conversation, get to know you, hear your story, let you know who we are. The other thing you can do, there's a card in front of you. If you prefer to fill that out and drop it off, you can do that as well. We're glad you're here. Um, we're, our goal is to provide connection to Jesus for absolutely anyone, and we really fully mean that. I know a lot of churches say that, a lot of churches like front that, in some ways, um, and we're really actually trying to live into that. So thank you for being here. Okay, so we've been talking about prayer, and we're halfway through our series on uh, how can we learn about praying by listening to the Psalms. And this morning, I think is probably perhaps uh, like the most important morning um, so the, the, the first Sunday, we talked about kind of like the theological foundation of prayer, that, that prayer starts with God. Um, 
the second Sunday, we talked about, like, what does it look like to, for us to pray into the face of the silence of God when uh, the horrible things happen to us and around us, when we don't feel like we can pray, we don't have the words to pray, what do we do? This Sunday, what I want us to do is just really practically answer the question, wait, why should we even pray? Like, what's the point? What are we doing? Like, especially when you get into, like, some of the weird, uh, they're not stupid. <laughs> right? You get into some of the weird questions like, well, if God already knows what I'm going to ask for, why do I need to ask for it anyways? And, right? And, and, like, these are good questions. But if you've been around any length of time, you realize, like, nobody knows. Like, no one is in the mind of God. And anyone who's telling you, oh, well, here's the answer to these profound questions that people have asked for 2,000-some-odd years, um, run, <laughs> probably. Um, anyways, yeah. So how do we pray? Uh, sorry, why do we pray and how do we pray? These are the two questions I want us to look at today. What are we doing when we're praying? And then more practically, like, how do we go about it? I want us to leave this place with a real desire to be like, oh my gosh, yes, I want that. No, 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 I need that. But then I also want us to walk out of here with like some real practical tools in our pocket. I, not only do I want this, but now I actually have like a means to like obtain it. Like how do I step into living a life of prayer? And so that's our goal. I think for most of us, our understanding of prayer comes from what we've seen and encountered. We were taught to pray by listening to and watching others around us pray or not pray in some situations. And so for a lot of us, like maybe we have like a really rich and vibrant uh, like understanding of what prayer is. And, and maybe we even have our own rich and vibrant prayer life because of that. We've been surrounded by people who are infatuated with Jesus and that just oozed out of them in ways that were, um, I don't know, just kind of caught on to us. But I think probably the case for most of us is that we've seen prayer that just kind of like fits and starts, uh, sputters along and is, I don't know, uh, skips across the surface of the water rather than like diving deep into the depths of the ocean is kind of the image that pops in my head when I think about this. And, and really for a lot of us, what we've seen is that Prayer is mostly us asking. And I, and I think our praying is important, one, because of this very reality. Most of us know what prayer is because of what others not have told us prayer is, but because of what others have shown us prayer is. There are two women in my life that have uh, stirred in me a longing for richer and deeper prayer. And it didn't come from them lecturing me on prayer. It didn't come from them like giving me like, here's five steps to a better prayer life. It came from them showing me their prayer life. I was like, oh, I want that. I want to crave Jesus like you crave Jesus. One of them got in trouble on Twitter this week for craving Jesus a little too much. If you know, you know. <laughs> so if prayer isn't mostly us asking, then what is it, right? So, and like us asking is not entirely wrong. 
Um, in fact, like the Greek word for prayer is like petitioning or asking. Like, so it's not like if you're ever asking when you pray, you're doing it wrong. That, that's not my point. My point is that it's not only asking. And I think when we pray just to ask, we like suddenly start to see prayer as a means to an end. Well, I guess I'll pray because like if I don't pray, then I won't get this thing that I want. Or I guess I'll pray because that's what God wants from me. I'm not really sure why, but I should do it to be a a good boy or girl or whatever. I I guess I'll pray because it's what God wants me to do. And I want to be a good person, right? And so I'll pray. And we see prayer as a means to an end. And what I want to suggest to you and what the Psalms, I think, show us is that prayer is the end itself. That the point of prayer is the praying. So to answer why we pray, we're going to once again look to the scripture's book of prayers, the Psalms. And I love the Psalms for so many reasons, but this is probably at the top of my list. The, prayer, uh, the Psalms don't tell us how to pray, they show us. We're invited into a rich history and tradition of the people of God's prayer life. And it's not an instruction manual. It's a real invitation to encounter the God that the Psalms are engaging with. So they paint a picture of prayer. They invite us into their praying. And they are rich prayers that can inform and inspire a rich prayer life. And so in answering why do we pray, we're going to look closely at the picture painted by Psalm 16, the one that... uh, Lauren read for us to start our service. And I want us to start by just diving deep into some of the imagery of Psalm 16, like slowing down a little bit, seeing exactly what picture the psalmist is painting, examining the brushstrokes, the use of colors, the depth of field, really getting into the artistic expression of the psalm. And I want it to get inside of us, to inspire us, to to spark something in us, to change us. Maybe awakening something inside of us that's grown cold and dormant, especially over the last few years. And so let's dive right in. Our prayer this morning is that God would use this psalm to stir our hearts. Psalm chapter 16, verse 1. Um, I'm reading out of the ESV this morning. We switch translations all the time. Uh, One, there's no perfect translation. You're going to see that this morning, or at least I'm going to tell you that that's the case. You probably won't see it in front of you. You're going to have to take my word for it, but trust me, it's the case. No perfect translation. Uh, ESV gets some things really right here. The ESV gets some things not wrong, but just does some things differently here than what I would do. And one of the really tricky things with a psalm like this is there's parts of the psalm where people are like, I don't know what this means. And we start with a mictum. This is a mictum of David, and no one has any idea what a mictum is. <laughs> um, so there you go. But we like the ESV this morning, and so we're going to be in there. Verse 1, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And so the psalmist begins with this plea of protection. Protect me, preserve me, save me, take care of me. You are my refuge. 
You are my sanctuary. You are the place I go to hide. The place I find safety. I'm running to you. And I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And so we, we pray because God is our greatest good. Right? And, and whether we recognize this or not, whether we're like opposed to this idea or whether we're like, yeah, no, that's, that's about right, but then we don't like readily engage with it 24-7, it remains true. God is our greatest good. And the psalmist declares this in some really strange language, but God is the thing that we both need and desire above all. And in the psalmist's refuge, they don't just find protection. They don't just find the bare necessities. They find their good. The thing their soul longs for. And so in verse 2, we have this, like, obscure Hebrew. And, and literally what it says, I'll give you the, the Brandon translation. <laughs> Yahweh, you are my master, Right, so in our English, it says Lord and Lord. Uh, Lord is like capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the proper name of Yahweh, the proper name of the God uh, uh, of Israel as he revealed himself to the people of Israel. And so it's literally like a proper name, like Brandon is my proper name. Yahweh is their proper name, right? There's some respect that goes into the name, and so they don't actually write Yahweh. They write in Hebrew, it's Adonai. In our English translations, it comes out in this capital, all caps, L-O-R-D. But notice the next Lord, if you've got your Bibles in front of you, because I know the capitals aren't right on the screen. The next Lord is just like regular capital L and then all lowercase O-R-D. Right? These are two different words being translated into the same English word. And it's literally, hey, Yahweh, like the personal God that I have come to encounter and know, you are my master, you are my boss, you are my king, you are my Lord. And then here's where the obscure part comes in. It literally says, my good, not above you. You're like, ah, wait, what's, what does it mean? And if you go through and you look at different translations, like they're all trying to get at what's being communicated in this idea. The idea is like, there is nothing better outside of you that I will find. There is no good apart from you, is how some English translations translate this. There is no good beyond you or above you. There is no good that I could possibly find apart from who you are. Uh, maybe we could think of this in this way. If our, all of our wildest dreams were to come true, like we uh, suddenly snap our fingers and everything we could possibly ever want existed, but you were to remove God from it. Right, what the psalmist is saying here is that scenario could not possibly exist. That your wildest dreams would not actually be good. But then really, more importantly to the psalmist is that the flip is, is true. That if all heck is breaking loose in my world, but I have you, O oh Lord, then I have everything I need. 
Some people think this is a psalm written by David as he's fleeing for his life and is taking sanctuary among the, the Levitical priests, right? So they, uh, Israel had like these sanctuary cities, and if like you murdered someone or someone was out to like get you, you could flee to them and take refuge in the sanctuary city, and they're protected by priests, and like there was this whole thing. And so some people are like looking at this psalm, and they're going, hey, th- maybe this is what's going on here. And all of a sudden, it's a picture of someone who's like, fleeing for their lives, but who's also like thinking, God, I have you. I don't need anything else. You are my highest good. And we see some contrast here in the next section, verse three. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Right, so again, the Hebrew gets really, it continues with some of its like, it's using some strange language. And so either what the psalmist is saying is like, oh, I should be holy like these holy ones. Or more likely, what the psalmist is saying is these holy ones that I used to look up to, I'm, I'm realizing are not what I thought they were. And so there's two suggestions here. One is this is describing like idolatry in Israel, Right, the righteous ones, the holy ones, the, the ones in charge that should be closely uh, following Yahweh have abandoned Yahweh. Or, and I really like this picture, right? And this is part of the beauty of the Psalms is there's no like concrete answer. They all fit because they, it, it just works in so many different life scenarios. But, but the other suggestion is that maybe this is like someone who converted They were a Canaanite, they were a a, a pagan, they were a a Gentile. They came to know and experience Yahweh, and now these mighty ones are their former gods. And they're suddenly realizing, why would I go back to them when I have you? Verse four, the sorrows of those who run after other gods shall multiply. Ah, that's, don't worry, the the ambiguity is about to end. That's a terrible translation. (laughs) Um, those who run after another will increase their sorrows. And this phrase run after is a phrase that's used for like an engagement. It's a dowry. If I were to go and uh, right, if I lived back in the ancient Near East and I wanted to go marry someone, I would like put like this loot, this, this amount of money down to, to have that relationship with them. There's, this is betrothal language. They are giving themselves over to another. This is the language of a bride price. And it's used to describe both a strong desire for other gods and also the sacrifice that's given in order to be knit together with these other gods. So the psalmist stands back, looks at these people that they used to look up to, whether they were other deities or whether they were like so-called righteous people, And they see them like giving these things over to these gods in sacrifice. And then they respond. In the second half of verse four, their drink offerings of blood, I will never pour out. And suddenly the Hebrew becomes very clear from here on out. I will not partake in this type of worship. (laughs) I... um, this last little part of verse four, or take their names upon my lips. Um, like you won't, you won't find their names in my mouth. 
is literally how this is phrased. I want to be talking about them, much less worshiping them, much less like sacrificing to them. These gods are dead to me. And so this clear picture of idolatry is in contrast to the confidence that the psalmist has in the God who is her refuge. And one of the things we have to understand here is this is not just, we've talked about this last couple of weeks, but this is not just simply, oh yeah, I'm going to choose to like, uh, I'll worship Yahweh instead of worshiping uh, Baal. You know, it's no big deal. It's just like pick your God. Like they have like actual stakes in this. There is a real economic like, if I worship the wrong God, I will suffer for it. The material world is tethered to the divine world in their mind. So to reject the other gods and to follow Yahweh is to potentially reject the material reality associated with those other gods and trust Yahweh to care for that material reality. This is not just a matter of like a preference. And so the psalmist commits herself to Yahweh because in him she finds her greatest good. And this is why we pray. Because even when it doesn't seem like it, even when it doesn't feel like it, uh, even when it feels like God is a million miles away, God is our greatest good. But watch what picture she continues to paint. Verse five, I love this imagery. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And we read this, and I think a lot of this is like, okay, that's kind of nice. She has a field, I guess. That's great. Good for you. Now, what she's saying is, God, you are my inheritance. You are the thing that I get. So these, uh, this portion in this cup language is literally the language of like, if you are gambling, uh, this is probably the closest thing in our world that we have to this. So what they would have done is they would have like, hey, we're going to divvy up this land. We have this land to give out. Uh, how, how are we going to decide who gets what? We'll, we'll throw lots, and lots were just basically dice. We're going to throw some dice, and as we throw the dice, it'll decide who gets what. And so literally, this is a picture of we're, we're sitting at a, a poker table, or I guess uh, poker, you don't have dice, you have cards. That's different. You're sitting at a craps table, and you're rolling the dice, and you're like, what's going to fall to me? And the psalmist is going, what's going to happen? I don't know. And she ends up with the whole pot. But the whole pot is not the money. The whole pot is God's self because God causes the dice to land where he wants. And so there's this really cool and powerful image of like, oh, God, you are my inheritance. You are giving yourself to me. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So she sees God as her ultimate gain. And so, yeah, in this, there is like some material provision for her future that's in mind. But if we're getting the context of, wait a second, I'm taking refuge in Yahweh, like there's something going on behind the scenes in this psalmist's life, like things are not all hunky-dory. 
And the, the material imagery is used to point to the quality of Yahweh, not to what Yahweh gives her. In other words, what she cares about is having God, not having what God can get her. So she doesn't stop there. The land that she describes is luscious and rich and fertile and beautiful. Um, Robert Alter is like a Hebrew ex expert. If Jedis were a thing and they did Hebrew, Robert Alter would be like the master Jedi of Hebrews. Or Hebrew, sorry. <laughs> Alter's translation of this verse, uh, the, the, his whole translation of this entire psalm is fantastic, as along with his notes, if you want to check them out. But his translation of this verse, verse 5, he says, the Lord is my portion and lot. It is you who sustain my fate. You're an inheritance that fell to me with delight. You're my estate. This is too lovely for me. So now the psalmist responds, verse seven, to her recognition of what she has in God. Verse seven, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he's at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. If God is our greatest good, then we pray also because connection with God is our greatest need. So we pray because God is our greatest good, but we also pray because connection with our greatest good is our greatest need. We need to know God, not like intellectually. We need to like experience and encounter God. Not just like a forensic connection, a legal connection, right? Imagine that, right? And the New Testament uses this language of like adoption. And a lot of times we hear this analogy uh, what Jesus has done for you is a lot like adoption, and it absolutely is, but not in the way that we tend to think of it, right? We tend to think of it in like a legal, like, oh yeah, I was legally this person's kid, and now I'm legally that person's kid. But like, if it's just legal and never relational, it doesn't matter, right? If I'm in the foster system and someone adopts me, but I stay in the foster system, who cares, it's about an actual experienced relationship. So that, that picture, that image, that illustration only comes alive, not just when we forensically acknowledge that we've been moved from relationship over here to relationship over here. It's when we enter into the lived reality of that relationship. Or let me put it plainly, when we talk to God and when we listen as God talks to us. Actual experience connection. Verse eight, when she says, I've set the Lord always before me. Right, there's this real picture of before my face, day and night, is Yahweh. I think about him. I can't get my mind off of him. I put him before me. And when I forget him, I bring him right back. And he's right here again. And because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. This is a, a nod back to Psalm 15, where at the end it's crying out, God, help me, God, help me. Are you going to let your people be shaken? And Psalm 16 responds, no, 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 no. Those who take refuge in the Lord shall not be shaken. 
And so our praying is our like actual experience of connecting with God. It's not just our asking, it's our being with God. Like spending time with him. The way that we spend time with any other person we have an actual relationship with. And so the, the response in verse seven from the psalmist almost like bursts forth. I bless the Lord, right? After all this like really beautiful poetic imagery, she cries out, not in dutiful prayer. Well, I guess I'll be a good soldier, do what I'm supposed to. She can't help it. God, I bless you. Um, Eugene Peterson says this about prayer, the better a man learns to pray, the better he understands that all of our stammering is simply a response to a God who has and continues to speak first. This is what the psalmist does here. Oh God, look what you have done. Look who you are. Look how amazing of an inheritance I have. And she responds. And so prayer is a conversation it's a conversation between God and our souls. But because of that, like, like any conversation, it's not a monologue. It's dialogue. It's talking and it's listening. And, and even more foundationally, it's just being connected to in the presence of. Verse nine, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. There's this really cool thing that the psalmist does here where they go from the heart to the liver to the flesh. And you're like, wait, what? (laughs) Um, What they're saying is like, my heart desires you, my soul yearns for you, and even my body is aching for you. It's like this movement that's really cool. My whole being rejoices. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. So Sheol is simply the grave. It's where dead people go. In the Old Testament, it was where all dead people went, whether you were a good person or a bad person. There was no real conception of heaven or hell or that sort of thing that comes later on like medieval Christianity, basically, Um, which is a whole other conversation we can have. I just realized I opened up a can of worms and dumped it all over the floor. But we're going to move on. So Sheol is like this, it's like their description of, uh, it's a hole in the ground, basically. And maybe there was some sort of mystical, like, attachment to that. But God was apart from it. It was dark. It, like, it wasn't a happy place. It was like this symbol of death. And so you will not abandon me to death. You won't forsake me. You won't let this holy one, right? Remember there's this reference to the holy ones earlier. You won't let this holy one see corruption. Uh, and the phrase, the, the word they use for holy one is, right? It's this, this verb that's used of Yahweh all over the place, his hesed. Maybe you've heard of this if, you're, if you dabble in Bible nerd things like I do. So the hesed of God is like the attribute of the Old Testament God that God wants Israel to know about himself, and Hesed is his like faithfulness, his loyal love. It is like a I can't quit you kind of situation. And what this word here of holy ones does is it takes that, that verb, that attribute of God, and it turns it into like a noun. Uh, there's a grammar word for that. I don't know what it is. 
Um, <laughs> right, and so it's, it's literally like, oh, well, these are the, the holy ones, the ones who are receiving the hesed of God. I, I, I prefer to translate this as the beloved, the ones on whom God will not quit, the ones that God continues to love no matter what. You will not let your blessed, beloved see corruption. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And again, we see this idea of a face, but it's not the psalmist's face holding God in front of her. Now it's her before the face of God. In your presence, there is fullness of joy is literally in your face. There is fullness of joy. There is delight. There is pleasure. Um, So I mentioned kind of jokingly, a person who had a big influence on me on Twitter getting dragged for saying they had a crush on Jesus. Like, this is pretty close to that. Like, this is a love affair with God. This is not stoic religious language that keeps God at a distance. This is an internal fire of affection. God, I delight in you because you are delightful. Uh, Robert Alter, the guy I mentioned earlier, he suggests literally that this, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, should be translated as uh, a, a satiety of joys in your presence, right? Satiety is like a really fancy word for like, I get everything I crave. Like I'm really hungry and I want something to eat and I'm just, ah, I'm feasting. Like all the joy is fulfilled in your presence. What if that's prayer? We come to God hungry, we walk away filled. We find real satisfaction, we find delight, we find the thing our soul longs for. And so I want to give you some real practical ways to pray before we wrap this up. How do we actually do this? Um, These are not exclusive ways of praying. There are others, but like these are some real tangible, like this week you could choose, I think there's six of them. Yeah, six of them. You could, between like Monday and Saturday of the next week, you could do one each day and see if one resonates with you. The first is uh, called The Practice of the Presence. This was made famous by a monk named Brother Lawrence. We've got his book out on the bookshelf in our little pastoral library. The purpose of that library is borrow a book, read it, and bring it back. These are books that we constantly recommend to people, and we feel like uh, they're right there. Just grab one that interests you. This is one. It's the idea of, as I go about my daily life, God is with me. What if, what if I was present to his presence? What if I was mindful of the fact that in my labor, in my work, in my driving to work, in my laying my head down on the pillow, in my eating my sandwich at lunch, God is with me. 
And he talks about, he was a cook, and so he talks about like scrubbing the floors and that being like this worshipful thing that fills his soul with delight as he's scrubbing the floors. So this is one way, being mindful of God throughout the day. He's also like really clear, like this takes actual practice. It's not just like a switch you flip and you're like, oh, cool, I'm doing it now. Number two, formal prayers. These are like books. So you can find like a variety of different books, such as the Liturgy of the Hours or the Book of Common Prayer, which is what the Anglican or the Episcopalian churches uses. The, the Synecdomos, which is the Orthodox Christian prayer book. You can go buy it on Amazon, bring it home, and it's got like literally prayers for the morning, prayers for the afternoon, prayers for the evening, right? Um, some other good ones that I like, the Divine Hours or Every Moment Holy, which has like topical like life situations that has really beautiful prayers that you can pray. And so like sitting down and reading formal prayers, engaging with that. Number three, Lectio Divina. I didn't go to seminary for nothing. (laughs) I don't know what a participle is, but I can say Lectio Divina. Gregory of Nyssa uh, like founds this in 350 AD. And it's, it's like four ways of engaging with God. What I want you to see here is like all of these are very, 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 very ancient. That Christians for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and very likely the Israelites before them were engaging in these types of practices to encounter God. And so Lexio Divina is you take the scriptures and you read them very slowly right? Maybe it's one, two, three verses. You then pause and you meditate. You reflect on what you just read. And this word for meditation, Eugene Peterson has a great description of this in his book, Eat This Book, which is about how to read the Bible, how to pray the Bible. It's like a dog gnawing on a bone. You just chew it and enjoy it. Just meditate on it. And then you respond, you pray. You respond in language back to God over what you've just read and then meditated on. You then pray it. And then you end in contemplation. You rest and you sit in silence. You sit in God's presence and you let the words and the presence of God sink into your soul. Number four, Spontaneous prayers. This is the type of praying that you and I are most likely used to. This is the, hey, it's like jazz praying. You just make it up as you go. And we can riff on one another, right? Um, Like spontaneous praying is great. And there's certainly a place for it. But also there is a real burden because there are times when, one, we feel weird because we're like, I'm new at praying and I don't know how to pray. Or two, we're just aching and hurting so much that like we can't bear to like bring the right words out. These other forms of prayer are really helpful if that's your situation. They can give you language and words when you don't have any. So spontaneous praying. Number five, uh, repetition, or sorry, repetitious prayer. Short prayers that are just repeated. Most famous of these is the Jesus prayer. Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus, son of God. 
mercy on me, a sinner. We just spend time and we create space. And as we say the words, we let the words do something to us and in us and we connect with Jesus, maybe try to believe the things that we're saying that are maybe hard to believe in that moment. But you don't have to just do the Jesus prayer. There's a number of different things. You could grab some, some lines from Psalms that you find particularly striking and helpful and just repeat them slowly, out loud or in your head. And then lastly, and probably the least talked about in, in our types of circles is silence. Just being with God uh, has a rich history and is something that we don't think about doing very often, right? We're good producers. What does God want from me? Oh, he must need words. Here, God. God doesn't need our words. <laughs> um, child psychologists agree that the single most important thing that determines a child's long-term development and well-being is connection. Right? Do, they, do they have a caregiver that they can trust and depend on to take care of them, that loves them, that creates a safe space for them, right? What if this isn't just true for children? So I shared a few weeks ago... Um, when we were talking about prayer, the analogy of my daughter crawling into my lap. What if my daughter thought that our relationship existed only in terms of what she asked and I gave her? That that was the extent of it. And the only time she could ever talk to me is when she asked for something. What if my daughter never thought, especially when she's sick, she never thought it was just okay to crawl into my lap and just sit. And just rest her head on my chest and just be. In the words of Jesus, like, if me, like a sinful father, can give that to my daughter, how much more does God want to give that to me? How much more do we need that? Right, if, if connection is like the most important thing in determining like the flourishing and well-being of a child, is it possibly true that connection is the thing that will determine our flourishing and well-being? What if what we really need is connection with God? So last thing, and I'm already over. I'm sorry. I'm trying to make these shorter. In the last couple of weeks, I've gone longer. I apologize. It's, it was been a, it's been a week. My daughter has been sick. And so this is what happens when I prepare less. I say more. So there you go. Um, I need to self-edit. <laughs> so, right, the Psalms show us that prayer is more than asking, that it's being, but being with the singular thing that can truly satisfy our souls. Okay, so, so last thing, and I'll end on this. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, I've told this story before. I'm going to tell it again. I'll probably tell it a million times again in the future. I remember like as a Bible student looking through the gospels, trying to find like the version of go the gospel, like the tract that I was handing people, like here are the five spiritual laws, but Jesus wasn't saying the five spiritual laws. And this confused me. Like, wait a second, uh, what's missing here? 
And, and you read the Gospel of John in particular, and there's this consistent invitation into life, into life. Don't, if you just follow me, you'll have life. If you just believe in me, I'll give you life. And he uses all these metaphors like, come to me and I'll give you living water that will refresh your soul. And it'll become like a spring of water that flows out of you. And I'm like, he's talking about heaven, clearly. That's heaven. No, I don't think he's talking about heaven at all. And, and especially in like the most intimate and powerful moments of Jesus' life and in the hours before he dies, the most important thing he has to say to his disciples, remain in me and I'll remain in you. And together we'll remain in the Father. Me and him and you and me, Right? Sometimes we hear the good news is, you better believe in Jesus or else you're going to hell. And so we believe in Jesus because like hell sounds pretty terrible. Heaven doesn't sound that great, but hell sounds worse. It's like, I guess, uh, heaven. We worry so much about what we're being saved from that we never stop to ask the question, wait a second, maybe what we're being saved from is actually what we're being saved to. Maybe we are missing connection. Maybe we are missing the most important connection. Maybe Jesus is bringing that connection to us in ways that we can't provide for ourselves. Maybe this is the good news that right here and right now, through Jesus and by his spirit, we can commune with the living God. We can satisfy and nourish our souls we can be with the father of the universe. We can pray. So let's do it. Father, I confess that I believe so much of this. And yet find myself I don't know, practicing it far less often than I should. Um, living into it the way that I think living into it ought to, to happen, I don't know. What I do know is that you're merciful and you're gracious and that you're really actually extending an invitation to delight in you, to find pleasure in your presence, to be filled and satisfied. I also know that you have created a hunger in me for that, to, to see you, to know you, to talk to you, to hear from you, to just be with you. Will you continue to do that for me? Will you do that for each and every person here? And when we don't have that hunger, will you draw us to yourself anyways? And when we do come to you, will you satisfy our souls? Will you let us delight in you? As we stammer and stumble and try to commune with you the best ways we know how, will you condescend to us and love us deeply and ferociously? We love you. Thank you. Help us pray. Help us to be with you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor, or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.